Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the DNS podcast. Today, we will be discussing nutrition support and pancreatic surgery with certified specialist in oncology nutrition, Valerie Williams. Valerie has worked as a clinical dietitian at academic medical centers across the country, currently working at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Over the past 10 years, she has specialized in caring for patients with cancers, focusing specifically on cancers of the gastrointestinal tract. She serves in several volunteer roles for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and is a commissioner for the Commission on Dietetic Registration. Valerie received a Bachelor of Science degree in Dietetics from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania and a Master of Health Sciences degree from Chatham University. So Valerie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to start kind of with the basics. And if you could help us understand, what are some of the most common reasons that a patient would undergo pancreatic surgery? That's a great question, especially for people who maybe don't work in centers that that have pancreatic surgeons, you may not know why a patient would have these surgeries. Um, One reason is for chronic pancreatitis, especially that hasn't improved with um, other treatments. And oftentimes you'll see patients having pancreatic surgery for cancer treatment, um, especially cancers of the pancreas, the duodenum, um, the ampulla, and cholangiocarcinomas dependent on their location. And for many um, cancer patients, this surgery is their only curative option. So it's very appealing and exciting for patients when they're able to go to surgery because it's their only chance at a cure. And then lastly, you'll see these surgeries for non-cancerous cysts and lesions or precancerous cysts and lesions, including introductal mucinous neoplasms or IPMN. And so that's usually what you're going to be seeing patients who are having pancreatic surgery coming in with. And I understand that there are different types of pancreatic surgery. So can you help explain what those types are and then how that impacts our nutrition care planning? Yes, of course. And so um, the type of surgery that they decide on is based on either where the tumor is located or where the majority of the damage to the pancreas is located. And so the one that has the least impact on nutrition short and long-term is the distal pancreatectomy, which takes the tail of the pancreas and the spleen. It doesn't have any impact on long-term digestion. Um, for the patient. It doesn't reroute anything from a digestive standpoint and so often requires the least intensive nutrition care plan. Um, And then you have three more intense surgeries. You have the pancreaticoduodenectomy, and that is more lovingly known as the Whipple procedure. And then you have the pylorus sparing pancreaticoduodenectomy, 
So the traditional Whipple or um, PD, as I'll say it shorter, because it can get hard to say that word over and over, um, it involves removal of several areas, including the head of the pancreas, the distal bile duct, the gallbladder, duodenum, pylorus, and the distal stomach. And it reroutes the emptying of the stomach contents, the bile and the enzymes into the small intestine. And then in the pylorus preserving PD, um, the surgery is the same, except for you retain the pylorus and the stomach. Um, and it was originally thought that that helped to cause less side effects, especially delayed gastric emptying. But surprise, surprise, more recent studies have shown that that actually isn't necessarily true. But um, the surgery used, the PD or the pylorus preserving PD, is usually a surgeon preference from what I've seen in my practice. And then lastly, you have the total pancreatectomy. Um, and that involves complete removal of the pancreas, the gallbladder, part of the stomach, part of the small bowel, um, the bile duct, spleen, and lymph nodes. And so you can imagine that that surgery has the most intense nutrition care plan requirements because they will be diabetic, they will have maldigestion due to exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, and then um, some gastrointestinal complications that you also see with the PD and the pylorus preserving. PD. So the dietitian's involvement is much higher in the patients with a PD, pylorus preserving PD, or a total pancreatectomy, um, and they should be involved as much as possible with those patients. And I'm guessing that when you're working with these this patient population, I, I would think it's pretty intense, right, where you've got to have a lot of contact with them. Is, is that accurate? an accurate assumption? Yes, that's very accurate. I um, like to think that you have to kind of insert yourself into the team as much as you can from as early as you can and help the patient to understand um, the importance of nutrition early so that they will build those skills they need to get through surgery successfully. There has always been this thought in um, this area, especially that patients are going to lose weight and they may lose 10% or more of their weight. And that's okay, it's to be expected. But as dietitians, we need to challenge that and try to minimize that percentage as much as possible. So what approaches do you find most effective when you're trying to insert yourself into the process or to build that relationship with either the patient or even the care team? I think um, if a dietitian can be involved in what brings the patient to surgery, like not just getting involved on the inpatient side, but if there are dietitians available on the outpatient side, say in the cancer center, a patient with pancreatic cancer is going to have nutrition needs and risk for malnutrition from diagnosis forward. So if you can follow them through the pathway that leads them to surgery, they will already have grown an appreciation of, of the importance of nutrition and then will carry that through to their surgery versus seeing a dietitian right after they had a surgery and they have an NG tube in their nose. They're not as open to a dietitian at that point in time because they're feeling really terrible. And so I think getting involved early, I also think meeting the patient where they are so that um, you understand what challenges they've had nutritionally coming in and help them to build skills that they feel 
they can carry forward to make it approachable for them because it can be a very daunting surgery. And I honestly feel like patients don't always realize how challenging it's going to be because they're just so excited to get to surgery. And so I think helping them build a plan that they can build on week over week and um, have success at the end, that is very approachable for them. So how does a patient's preoperative nutritional status impact their postoperative outcomes? That's a great question. Weight loss, low BMI, and muscle mass loss has been correlated with poor outcomes and in both surgery and oncology treatments after a resection. Um, and especially sarcopenia, which I know we're all looking for more in our practices, um, is high in this patient population. 19 to 65% of patients um, undergoing resection have sarcopenia and it is an independent risk factor for complications such as postoperative fistulas and um, increased hospital length of stay, as well as the need to discharge to a facility. Another area that I think um, is important to think about with nutrition is that it, nutrition for cancer treatment is more like a marathon than a sprint. So a lot of these patients need to be well-nourished coming into surgery because after surgery, they have to have more chemotherapy. And so you want them to have great outcomes from their surgery, but also to be strong for the next step um, as well. And I, you, you touched on this a few minutes ago, but what kinds of complications of care are you seeing in this patient population? They can be numerous and not every patient has every side effect. And there's some side effects you may not see until they start eating more. Um, but side effects that you'll see for all types of surgery um, for pancreatic resection is the risk for pancreatic fistulas and abscesses, um, drain and surgical site infections, um, chyle leaks, which then add yet another layer of complication to this patient care. And I believe from what I've seen, increase their weight loss and risk of malnutrition because they're then limited in the fat they can consume as well. That's a tricky one. When you have a pancreatic resection paired with a chyle leak, it tests even the best dietitians in the business. Um, and then exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, which can lead to maldigestion and malabsorption, is um, a complication for all surgeries. Studies show that you do see it more when the head of the pancreas has been resected, but I've seen it and you will see it in all patients um, who've had those, those who've had resections. And then lastly, diabetes and hyperglycemia. Anytime you take part of the pancreas, you're at risk for both exocrine and endocrine lack of production. Um, and then when you look at at the pancreatic oduodenectomies, the pylorus preserving version of that surgery, and total pancreatectomies, you have more complications because of the rerouting of the digestive tract. And so you have um, delayed gastric emptying, which is the most common um, comorbidity that you will see postoperatively in these patients. 15 to 45% of patients experience this, um, and it can be really detrimental to their nutrition. It may last short term, but I've seen it last for several weeks um, for patients, so it can really be complicated for eight to 12 weeks. Sometimes they're, they're facing these symptoms and not able to eat as adequately due to them. So that's what I find as a dietitian, I am helping patients with the most is managing their delayed gastric emptying 
low appetite and helping them to get adequate food in, in a setting of those symptoms. You also have rapid intestinal transit. So sometimes you have patients who their stomach doesn't empty, but once it empties, it whips right out the other side. And so um, that can be a challenge as well. And then you have dumping syndrome that doesn't occur in the pylorus preserving version. And it I wouldn't say it's a top symptom that you see in patients, but if a patient's experiencing it, it can be um, a real challenge for them and something that they need help managing. And then lastly, anytime you move the digestive tract around, you have a risk for lactose intolerance. Um, so you can see it's a pretty long list of, of complications. What I find I help patients with the most is the exocrine pancreatic insufficiency with pancreatic enzyme replacement, management of delayed gastric emptying, and optimizing calories and protein um, in the setting of those symptoms. So walk us through your assessment process, meaning what do you specifically focus on when you're first meeting with the patient and doing their initial evaluation um, all the way through, you know, their long-term care plan? I think that these assessments often take time um, because you really want to get a good assessment to start. Um, So you have a good picture of kind of how the patient is coming into you. Um, So you want to spend time getting a history, especially a diet history of what they're eating, how they're eating. Are they a one meal a day eater? Do they graze? So that you know how much diet change they need to make after surgery. Um, You also want to find out if they're using any oral nutrition supplements because an oral nutrition supplement regimen is key to success after this type of surgery. It's very hard for people to eat enough solid food. You really need to find something liquid with calories and protein. And so figuring out what are they eating? What are they willing to eat? um, So that you can start brainstorming some ideas. You also want to find out what are their gastrointestinal symptoms before they came in for surgery. Did they have diagnosed exocrine pancreatic insufficiency? Was it being treated? Or did they have it and nobody found it? Because it really is an art to find EPI. In some centers, they don't have that art quite yet. And so really getting down to what did their nutrition look like? What does their weight look like? And what are their GI symptoms before they came in um, is important in the assessment. Also doing a great nutrition-focused physical exam is helpful so that you can determine their their degree of malnutrition, and that will help to guide you if you need to push for early nutrition support, um, because nutrition support isn't always utilized in these patients. And I find that um, as a dietitian, I have to push for that. So I want to identify that early in my patients so I can advocate for, for them. And then as a patient starts to eat, you want to find out how are they feeling? What do they feel like when they eat? What symptoms occur? So you're looking for your delayed gastric emptying, your exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. You also want to look for what are they eating? Are they making the right choices? Or or could they be picking more calorie-dense, small amounts of food and eating them more frequently? And so having a diet recall or a calorie count can be really helpful to help to illustrate to patients what changes they need to make. And I also think that making sure that you're reviewing the medication list and seeing what medications the patient is on um, for their symptom management. I find sometimes dietitians are timid to um, 
talk with doctors about things like reglin for delayed gastric emptying or pancreatic enzyme replacement for EPI. They think, well, it's meds. It's not in my realm. Um, but I find that often there's a lot for patients and providers to deal with. So I think really doing a thorough med review. And if you're seeing the patient on the outpatient side, asking them, how are you taking your reglin? How are you taking your enzymes? Um, to make sure that, that they're treating the symptoms that they're reporting to you is very important. And I also think teaching the patient what the symptoms are and why they're experiencing them is um, important so that they can understand the connection um, between their medications and their symptoms. And then also making sure that you're looking at the labs um, and seeing if if there's any that need to be addressed or any that need to be drawn. Is a patient coming in who might be at risk for vitamin deficiencies, fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies? Make sure that you're thinking broadly because this patient is just stopping at one stop with you and needs to be tuned up why they're why they're there um, as much as possible. So really taking your time with those assessments and digging below the surface is my recommendation. And you mentioned the patients who do need nutrition support. So, you know, what's a typical regimen, you know, whether it's EN or PN, what are you typically utilizing in these patients? So this, the surgeons of this population, they are not overly good at embracing enteral nutrition. Unlike um, the surgeons that provide esophagectomies and gastrectomies, they haven't necessarily adopted um, routine jejunostomy tube placement. And so that's an area where if you're seeing patients preoperatively, you can advocate for that. But oftentimes we don't have that opportunity. And so typically these patients, if they need nutrition support, are receiving parenteral nutrition. And sometimes it'll just be until they, um, it'll be in the hospital until their symptoms improve. Um, I have had some patients whose symptoms are not improving, their delayed gastric emptying is not getting better, or they have um, profusive leaks or chyle leaks that need additional nutrition support, and they'll go home on it. But, you know, I would say less than half of our patients that, that we see receive any kind of nutrition support. And I think that's really an area of growth is to help the surgeons identify um, the patients in need of nutrition support and starting it earlier. I've heard recently that um, a team told me, well, we don't think about nutrition support until day seven of MPO status. But we know in surgical patients that we've, we're missing early opportunity. And so I think nutrition support is an area that we need to keep discussing and demonstrating the benefit of in this um, pancreatic surgery population. And in that 50% or so that you are starting on PN, do you consider them to be generally at higher risk of refeeding syndrome? I would say yes, especially if they've been MPO for a prolonged period of time, or if they're coming in malnourished, you would be surprised how patients come into surgery for pancreatic resection because they've already been beat up by chemotherapy typically. And so they may have lost a significant amount of weight. They may have malnutrition. And so, yes, you should be looking for um, and treating refeeding syndrome in these patients. Well, I think that makes the case too for an outpatient dietitian intervention preoperative. So you can, you know, try to keep them as nourished as possible before they get to the the, the OR to have their procedure done. 
Yes, I completely agree with that. I am such an advocate for inserting yourself in the care of these patients, chronic pancreatitis or cancers, because it's so valuable and we know the prevalence of malnutrition is high. And so I think if you have the opportunity, if you work in a cancer center and you can seek out these patients and routinely see them, I, from my experience, have seen that it makes a significant difference. So thinking about the long-term post-op patient, are, are there any, aside from the, the common complications that you mentioned, are there any other concerns like, you know, micronutrient deficiencies that we should be on the lookout for? Yes. One um, complication that it's important to, to look for is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Patients are at risk for that, and um, it can often appear like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency that's not improving with enzyme therapy. Um, and so making sure that in your long-term patients, especially if you're dosed, if they're being dosed more and more enzymes and not the symptoms aren't improving, you should suggest ruling out um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so that's something to keep in to keep in mind. Also, micronutrient deficiencies um, can be numerous, especially if you have a patient that is maldigesting. Um, And there's not a lot of studies that have explored deficiencies in this population in a large number. Um, And so there's no comprehensive recommendation. So you want to, as a clinician and as part of your um, NFPE, to look for micronutrient deficiencies especially considering deficiencies of zinc, iron, B12, your fat-soluble vitamins, especially A, D, E, and K. Um, And then they have found some selenium and copper deficiencies as well. My opinion is that if you're seeing a patient after the surgery, like a, a few months out, and they're having symptoms of EPI, or you pick someone out up like a year after surgery, it's good to grab a lab panel with those labs in it um, to just see where where they lie because they can develop, you know, deficiencies over time. And sometimes people aren't looking for them. And so as a dietitian, you can be the one to mention what to look for um, and to take care of these patients long term. And also, I think sometimes we don't have a great long term nutrition concerns list and way to manage them because up until recently, these patients, even after surgery, did not live for many years. Um, They maybe lived for a year or two. So we didn't see what the long-term side effects were necessarily, especially for cancer patients. But now we're having the opportunity to see these patients years out from surgery. And so it's an area I think we can do a better job in developing standard care for. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're making the recommendation to, you know, check these nutrient panels to, you know, identify or rule out deficiency, are your surgeons or other allied health professionals receptive and willing to write those orders? Or do you see that as a challenge in itself? I think that one of the challenges to this is oftentimes the surgeon does not stay overly involved in the care team once the immediate post-operative period is over. So typically they may follow patients for two to three months after surgery, but from my experience, then they kind of step out and either the gastroenterologist or the medical oncologist steps back in 
to manage the care of those patients. And so I actually find that um, everybody tends to be willing to order the labs as long as you're willing to help them treat them when they come back um, and help to replete them or give suggestions. But I find that it's better to have the patient's labs followed with the oncologist the gastroenterologist or their PCP so that there can be routine follow-up lab draws or follow-up lab draws to see how the repletion worked um, so that there's continuity of care and the ball isn't getting dropped. Yeah. And I can see where, you know, it's, it's a, it's related to the surgery, but is it a surgical complication or does it become a, now a medical complication of their, of their holistic care planning? Yes. So we've just got time for one more question. And you've given a lot of great information today and a lot of great scenarios, which I, I appreciate that are extremely complex in, the, in these patient types, but you, you've really provided it in a very easy to understand way. So what advice would you give dietitians who are caring for patients after pancreatic surgery? One thing would be don't stand in the shadows. I know that um, surgeons can be intimidating. Um, and there's pancreatic surgeons that I've worked with that are world renowned. And I think oftentimes dietitians have a hard time integrating with a surgical team. They're fast paced, they're, you know, very to the point. And so I think if you are there and you routinely see their patients and you develop schedules in which you see their patients, they will value you but they will not necessarily invite you to the table. So you have to pull up a chair and, and kind of make your space in their care. And then they will, they will understand your value. But if you're waiting to be invited, you're likely going to miss it. And your patients are going to be underserved. And, and we want to take good care of these patients. I also think don't be afraid to help recommend um, ways to manage these surgical complications. Yes, many of them are medical, medically managed, um, but delayed gastric emptying, um, chyle leaks, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, we can help to recommend treatments for those, including medications such as Reglan and, and um, pancreatic enzymes, and we can reinforce and help to suggest dosing adjustments as needed. So don't be afraid to to reach to expand your area in which you discuss with your teams um, because we spend a lot of time with the patients we know their symptoms often better than other members on the team because patients tell us a lot i don't know about you guys but i've had patients send me pictures of their bowel movements um, describe things to me that they would never tell the surgeon and so don't be afraid to go back and say this is what they told me have you considered this? Or I recommend that we give this patient nutrition support because of X, Y, and Z. And they will warm up to you, but you have to really grind it out a little bit to, to gain an, um, a role on these teams sometimes um, because they're very focused on their siloed area. But trust me, you'll get invited to it and then you'll, you'll be too busy to, to worry about um, not having a spot at the table. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you know, I think to summarize what you said, you know, practice at the top of your license and build relationships so that you have the opportunity to practice at the top of your license. Yes. With that, we will conclude today's podcast. 
Valerie, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to help us all better understand the nutrition management of this very specialized niche of nutrition. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if nutrition management of patients with gastrointestinal disease is your area of interest or your area of expertise, please be sure to visit our website at dnsdpg.org and check out the DNS GI Network. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>